Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Bird's Eye by Spectacles. Welcome. If this is your first time listening to Spectacles, or Bird's Eye in particular, take a listen to the show trailer here in your podcast app or on our website at spectacles.news to learn more about what Spectacles is, what we believe, and what you can expect from this show and our other shows, Insight and Focus. Lots of people with all different kinds of politics can become, and often today are, frustrated with democracy, irritated that such simple and obviously correct policies can be so maddeningly difficult to realize. Many end up fantasizing one time or another about a perfect dictator who does all the things they know to be right, good, and necessary for a healthy society. Just one enlightened stroke of the pen, and our problems may be solved. Even though, as I said, people daydream about this even with very different visions of what is good, just about everyone who imagines this virtuous despot agrees on their personality. Intelligent, personally virtuous, and moral, reserved, impersonal, with a singular focus on the maintenance and well-being of the state. It is this kind of person, we imagine, that can do politics correctly, unencumbered by the common vices of the ambitious and vain who ordinarily stroll the halls of power. Well, today, we want to discuss one such person who fits that bill you probably haven't heard of, Antonio de Oliveira Salazar, in all but name the dictator of Portugal for 36 years, from 1932 to 1968. Salazar, credited with saving Portugal from itself in the 30s and from fascism and communism in the Second World War and Cold War, was even voted the greatest Portuguese ever in 2007 by his countrymen. So who was Salazar? And what can he teach us about whether dictatorship works? So before we get too deep into that, let's recap the last episode a little bit. We discussed the political scientist Manger Olson's theory of the stationary bandit. And we're going to recap to set the stage a little bit here for how Salazar is a relevant case study, a relevant example to discuss. The basic theory of the stationary bandit goes something like this. You get an, an individual or a group of people, but usually think of it as an individual who takes over a political community and becomes the ruler, right? As opposed to a roving bandit, someone who pillages and then leaves with with whatever they've gotten. And as the ruler, he actually has, if he wants to reap uh, wealth from the society that he's ruling, has an incentive to generate some kind of economic growth, right? So this idea that a dictatorship or a dictator has the incentive to develop the society and make it achieve some or help it achieve some level of um, prosperity, right? He wants to enlarge his revenue, usually I would say through taxes. Um, He wants to grow the national economy and sort of motivate or drive productive economic activity. And, And this theory is sort of supposed to be a counter to the claims that 
dictatorship really can't facilitate economic growth. But there's a catch. Right. And that it's to the point that Philip is making, democracy in some ways ends up being better suited to extraordinary growth because it has things like independent courts and property guarantees, things that allow economic activity to take place that are not possible in an autocracy where a single ruler can say he'll guarantee your property rights or will say that he'll respect some, you know, puppet court, but you know that since he is the You ruler, have no reliability. You have no reliability. Yeah. Right. And so even if the stationary bandit has an incentive to generate economic growth, the way that the incentive structure works, because he's trying to improve his own personal bottom line, the level of economic growth that can take place is limited, according to Olson's theory, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's the basic outline of the theory of the stationary bandit. A couple details about what Olson says that are worth noting that are going to be important for our discussion of Salazar are that he talks about really a singular stationary bandit or dictator who controls the state pretty much unilaterally, individually, and who acts rationally to enrich himself. Now, this view of how that dictator would behave is also informed by a sort of uh, materialist assumption about human nature, a belief that what human beings really desire at base is simply material goods and wealth above all else, right? So if you have a dictator, he's going to act rationally to enrich himself. Right. That's the ba- that, That's an important detail that Olson uses in his theory that is also going to be, we're going to be talking about. Right. So, I mean, just to, just to jump in really quickly, I mean, I think it's important to note that he's consciously making these relatively simple assumptions to account to use a simple theory, right? Because if you have a simple theory, if you have a really complex theory, it's hard to apply to a bunch of different cases. If you have a simple theory, you can apply it to a lot of different right. cases and see what's true and what's not. Um, and so it makes sense from the from the perspective of a political scientist or political theorist to come up with a simple theory that can be tested right. relatively easy, easily against certain case studies. Right. And on that note, that's what we're going to be doing just now. We're going to take a look. Let's, let's look at Salazar and let's see how this theory of dictatorship and of autocracy, this stationary bandit theory, does it hold up? Right. So first of all, who is this guy? Who is Antonio de Oliveira Salazar? He was born in 1889 to a lower middle class family in central Portugal. His father was a former agricultural worker who had come to own land. Salazar attended seminary school with the intention of becoming a priest. I should note that throughout his life, he was a committed Catholic, and that's a characteristic which heavily shaped his dictatorial rule. But he left the seminary and earned a law degree. Uh, Salazar became interested in finance and upon graduation uh, took a position as an assistant professor of economic policy. And I should also note that during this period of his early life, Portugal saw the overthrow of its monarchy and the establishment of the first Portuguese republic. Yeah, and on that note, this republic, this first Portuguese republic, it's important to point out, was extraordinarily unstable. It was plagued by corruption, riots, and just total political instability. And and Salazar actually served in the First Republic's parliament, but it was so unstable that he actually found the disorder intolerable and 
and resigned. Right. In 1926, the Portuguese military overthrew the Republic. Uh, so there was a military coup. Basically because it was so because chaotic. Because it was so chaotic and unstable. Salazar was asked to serve as the new dictatorship's minister of finance, but when his policies for tighter spending were rejected, he resigned his post after just five days in office. After resisting overtures to return for two years, he again took the finance minister position with the promise of extraordinary powers, namely the authority to reject any budget expenditure of his choosing, even those that were outside of his ministerial portfolio. Those powers accumulated even more when he threatened to resign yet again a year, a year later. And then they brought him back and said, okay, okay, fine. You can basically have right. whatever power you want. Right, right. And so <laughs> Cause, then- Because that's, that's how much they, they, they felt they needed him. He was such a whiz, such a virtuoso. Right. He, was a, he was a talent in this. In this and he, I think he brought, if I recall correctly, he brought about a balanced budget within a year. Which was like um, a first in decades. Right, right, exactly. And so after serving under basically a revolving door of prime ministers, he was appointed to the position in 1932. And so he was the prime minister Right, which is, you know, we think of that as like the prime minister of the UK, a democratically elected role. Not so in this case. As sort of an autocratic prime minister, he continued to stabilize Portugal's currency and economy. He shepherded the country through the Second World War by staying neutral and kind of friendly to both the Axis and the Allies and established uh, Portuguese nationalism in form, but not dominated by Catholicism. He was a conservative autocrat, strictly anti-communist, but I would also say not a fascist by any means. He ruled Portugal from his ascendancy to the premiership in 1932 until his health declined and he was forced to retire in 1968. He died about two years later in 1970. So that's a little primer on, on who this guy is. It's a really interesting story. There are tons of details to the history of Salazar in Portugal that we just don't have time to get into. But if this is the first time you're hearing about it, we you know encourage you go. We've linked a couple resources in the show notes. If you mm -hmm. want to learn more, super interesting period of history, especially if you love World War II history. Portugal doesn't get talked about very much, but it's there and it's, it, it's an important player. But anyways, that aside, that's Salazar. So first of all, I want to talk about how was Olson right? Essentially, how does the theory of the stationary bandit and how dictatorship actually works. How is it correct in the Salazar mm -hmm. example? And I think this is important because we see, we talk about how Olson makes these sort of assumptions about what kind of a dictator or what kind of behavior or thought process a dictator is going to employ in power, rational, self-interested, blah, blah, blah. And you can see in Salazar, who's like this academic, who ends up becoming pressured into political power and then has absolute authority, you would think this guy really fits the bill for who Olson imagines to be the rational dictator. Right. So how does it hold up? Well, first of all, Olson's definitely right about Dictatorship can facilitate economic growth. In Salazar's example, it certainly did. Not only did he stabilize the finances of the country and bring about a balanced budget, like Harry mentioned, you saw actual actual economic growth in Portugal throughout his term mm -hmm. as as finance minister and prime minister. So it was, you know, he's doing it was doing a pretty okay job facilitating economic growth. Another thing that Olson that's sort of applicable from Olson's theory to Salazar is Olson talks about how 
a dictator or an autocrat that has long time horizons and doesn't have an unstable rule, but it's pretty stable, pretty reliable, and also he's fairly young when he takes power and Mm -hmm. good health. These things all contribute to a long time horizon. Basically a belief that I'm going to be here for a while so I can think long term rather than how can I extract so much wealth as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And that that dictator will behave more rationally and facilitate more growth. And we definitely see that in a lot of ways with Salazar. I mean, aside from Francisco Franco, who's his neighbor over in Spain, Salazar was the autocrat who held power longest in all of the 20th century. So this is a guy who had, you know, really long time horizons. Uh, He clearly did take the long view and he knew how to protect his power in the short term, but he did have a vision, a long-term vision, and he really did his best to execute it. It was not simply short-term ideas. He really had this project of Portuguese nationalism, Portuguese growth, all these things that really were decades-long ideas, projects, and visions. So Olson's definitely right on both those fronts to some degree about growth and about long-term planning. Yeah, right. And so... In addition to that, right, sort of one other way that I think Olson uh, hits the nail on the head is that the gifted dictator's benefits really only last a short time after his passing. Right. So even if you've got a really, even if you get good growth out of a dictator, even if they take the long time horizons, they don't last forever. Right. There's this problem of succession, which, you know, plagues any kind of regime, but perhaps less democracies where things are institutionalized. But after Salazar's death, as we see in the case of, of Portugal, his sort of really skilled balancing act was flubbed. Not only was his successor, Marcelo Caetano, not as gifted as he was in the art of his financial magic, let's say, but he didn't do a great job balancing the competing interests which kept the regime afloat. The military became fed up with him, ended up being joined by a popular civil resistance, and that resulted in what history knows as the Carnation Revolution in 1974, which led to first the collapse of the dictatorship, then a transitional period, and then eventually democracy in Portugal later on. Right. And this is, Olson gets this right to an extent, but there's also kind of an interesting miss here is that not only are the benefits of dictatorship short-lived after a dictator's death and a truly gifted dictator can achieve certain things, but in Salazar's example, we actually see an autocrat who is so gifted and good at his job of restoring economic health and stability to the country that people appreciate after a time of great turmoil like Portugal experienced that by the time he died, There was really a new generation of Portuguese who had no collective memory of the turmoil that he had basically lifted the country out Mm -hmm. of so many decades earlier. And so, and this is part of the reason why there were so many young people who were partial toward a toppling of the dictatorship while older people recognized, oh, well, it was so tumultuous before, we're not so sure. And so Olson doesn't quite account for that, the fact that an autocrat can be so gifted that people actually forget the value of autocracy. And so that's just an interesting point. And on that note, there are some other things that Olson doesn't get quite right that I think we want to talk about. Yeah. And first of all, Harry, you just touched on it with the role of the military and toppling the dictator, you know, after Salazar died, but it points to the fact that Olson assumes the single actor as stationary bandit, but the truth is that there is no single dictator who acts alone right. and in a vacuum. It's never a homogeneous population. 
for one that he's ruling over and he's also never the only guy at the top of the food chain or right. toward the top of the food chain mm -hmm. there are all kinds of other elites. In the case of Portugal, he had to keep the military very happy. Mm -hmm. He had to keep some other people happy that we'll get into in a second. But on the po on the topic of population, there can be deep-seated cultural barriers too. Salazar has this quote talking about a policy that he was trying to pursue that we won't get into the details of. But he said, it is always difficult to apply novel principles to old societies with ingrained habits and a different outlook basically reflecting his frustration that you know you can't just be this guy with great ideas and totally shift an entire country right. bend it to your will right unless you're willing to kill just tons and tons and tons of people which by and large he refrained from doing mostly that kind of stuff on a macro level regarding other elites salazar endowed a lot of certain powerful families and companies with monopolies on certain goods, basically to keep them loyal to his regime and keep their support. And this is a point where monopolies are inefficient for economies. So Olson is wrong about that, right? That right. sometimes a dictator will have an, have an incentive to introduce inefficiency, not efficiency, to a country's economy because it's more important for maintaining their that power because you need that support of those elites right i mean i think that if you look at sort of other um political scientists political economists who share some similarities with olson's theory you can look at douglas north or darren asimoglu and james robinson who have written on this a lot right their point is that frequently uh, a single elite in power a dictator a king whoever has very powerful constituents allies who need to be bought off whose support needs to be bought right and so one common tactic of rulers is going to be to give them a monopoly on a certain good or something like that to protect them from competition. Um, and competition, right, obviously, is innovation, which can, you know, destabilize their political power. Um, and that produces economic inefficiencies, right? So it's important to remember one of the most important factors, rather than just the stationary bandit trying to extract as much wealth uh, for himself as he can, right? that this sort of coalition of elites sharing resources among themselves and, and, and paying each other off with kickbacks and supporting, you know, someone to be in the, in the position of rule, that really helps to explain in a lot of ways the economic inefficiencies that result from dictatorship. And importantly, that... No matter, again, as, as, as Philip has said a couple times, right, no matter how enlightened this ruler might be, there are certain structural factors of autocracy that require them to behave in constrained ways, to behave in constrained ways, right? So it's not like you get, you know, a philosopher king up at the top who says, I'm going to do everything this way and everyone does it, right? There are certain things, interests that have to be dealt with. And right. I think that's a very important thing to remember. On a more micro level, getting a little bit more into sort of the nitty gritty, you're talking about food production in in Portugal under Salazar. For even before he took power, Portugal had sort of struggled to produce enough wheat to feed its population. But and when he took power, he sort of tried an initiative to produce more wheat, but vested elite landowner interests, particularly in the south of Portugal, prohibited sort of more radical or redistributive reforms such as mechanization, right? So he said, I want more wheat, I'm going to impose, I'm going to create these certain reforms, but I'm not going to do the reforms in such a way 
that the balance of power of these sort of elite landowners or large landowners in the south of Portugal are upset by them, right? So that sort of takes a certain set of reforms off the table, even as you're trying to to shift the economy around to produce more. And I have a quote from a political scientist, Nancy Bermeo, who uh, has written a lot of great work, but uh, this is from 1986 on, on, on Portugal. It's a book called The Revolution Within the Revolution. And she, the quote is, if domestic production were to be increased, it would be increased through a process that would leave the properties and the interests of the landed elites unscathed, right? And so if you're trying to institute reforms, but you're saying, well, I'm not going to touch these powerful constituents who I rely on for my rule, for my political power, then you're not going to access the most uh, effective or efficient options, right? He wasn't willing to consider reforms that would that could pot- have any potential of dislodging the coveted status of elite landowners in Portugal's south. And then I have another quote. This is another political scientist named Ronald Chilcote, uh, which is quoted in another book by Michael Albertus. Although large landowners had lost ground to ascendant industrialists and bankers by the end of the Salazar regime, their alliance with Salazar persisted, and they could depend on on the repressive forces to protect their interests. There's this sense, right, that, that, that certain reforms which might allow agricultural workers or maybe even sort of more business interests in, in urban areas to pursue higher levels of economic efficiency because these elite landowners were crucial to Salazar's continued rule, were crucial supporters of his, They those options were not taken. Those were roads not taken because of the structural factors of dictatorship. And I think that's a really important point, right? And so as useful as Olson's theory is in so many ways and how neatly it applies into this case, uh, the assumption of a monolithic dictator and a homogeneous population doesn't really help to explain certain behaviors, right? Although it does remain true, and this is where it's really helpful, is that inefficiencies abound as a result of non representative or non-democratic rule right right and i think this is important also in in this way about you know the inefficiencies are perhaps greater than olson realizes is that he doesn't spend a lot of time explaining how or getting into or recognizing how reform and innovation that could bring greater efficiency are really threatening to the bandits position as as a person in power and so Economic growth is going to be more limited than Olson realizes for reasons that he he doesn't he doesn't seem treat to, yeah. yeah he doesn't seem to recognize right technological innovation or better treatment of Portuguese workers on these farms would have dislodged monopolists and landowners on whom he relied for power even if it would have produced more food made him more money in taxes etc cetera, etc cetera. he couldn't do these things right or or if he had done these things. Maybe he would have made a little more money immediately, but it would have been threatening to his position, which is an important part of a dictator's calculus that Olson doesn't get too much into. And also, it's not just that Salazar wanted to enrich himself as dictator. In fact, the opposite. Yeah, the dude is a very interesting character. Materialism just doesn't tell the whole story because... You know, as we, as Harry said, as Harry laid out in that in that little brief biography of Salazar, this is a guy who took minor orders in the Catholic Church, almost became a priest before he ended up going to study at law school. This is a guy who he ended up writing for a Catholic journal for a long time, 
one of his best friends in college ended up becoming the Cardinal of Lisbon. So this is a guy who really was very Catholic and was a really true believer when it came to Catholicism. And this informed his politics and his vision for Portuguese society. He was a somewhat romantic traditionalist, believing in the in the sort of virtue of the medieval age in which there were rulers who were sort of concerned with religion and higher things, blah, blah, blah. All that is to say, he wasn't quite really in it just for the money. He was firmly Catholic and firmly a Portuguese nationalist who believed in doing something good for his country and doing something good for the tenets of the Catholic faith. It, not to mention, not only was he not just in it for the money, he didn't get a lot of money or sort of a wealthy or lavish lifestyle out of it. He lived in a hotel room in Lisbon for basically his entire tenure, no palace or anything like right. that, and basically had his office as prime minister in his hotel room. So he'd go from his bedroom to his desk, basically just working all day, never took wives, never lived a very exuberant lifestyle by any accounts, right. just tended to his work, you know, like a, like a, just a serious technocrat. I and mean, didn't seem to have a lot of concern for himself particularly. So that's a point at which Olson doesn't account for a person like that. Right. That I mean, he does say in in at the end of his paper, he says, right, these, I make these assumptions about materialism right. and self-interest to, to, you know, help the theory along. Right. And it does help the theory along if you want this very simple idea of extracting wealth out of a society for, you right. know, your own personal gain. But, and he's, and he's conscious, and so Olson is conscious of that. I mean, he says, I know that this is not necessarily how people think but i also think right as you get into it, you have to think how does ideology factor into this right right what is what are our, our personal desire the personal desires of rulers are not exclusively money i mean clearly this guy was obsessed with power and sometimes that's you know power for power's sake seems to attract certain people and so in sort of thinking about how dictatorship works if it works how it doesn't work i think you do have to make this account for right. ideology and in right. some ways perhaps Definitely. Portugal's economy was more efficient and perhaps he was capable of these long time horizons because his primary interest was not in enriching him and extracting as much wealth for himself. Yeah. Um, but because he thought that there was some national good involved. And that's not to say that I have any agreements with his conception of the national good. I don't. But I think that that's a, a very important point to sort of chew on when you're thinking right. about how these theories apply or don't apply. Right. So that's sort of what did Olson get right? what did Olson get wrong or just sort of miss or not account for. And some of those are, you know, by design because he wasn't trying to create a super complex theory, but they're, they're points worth thinking about. On this last sort of part of our exploration of how does autocracy work in this episode, there's an important point to be made that Olson also doesn't quite account for the impact of a globalized world on the functioning of autocracy. Portugal experienced a lot of economic growth in, in the last decade of Salazar's rule, in large part because it liberalized its stance, not domestically, which to is To some what, extent domestically. To some extent, right? But primary, that's not the primary way, right? And Olson says, basically, to really get great growth, a regime has to liberalize domestically, do these things, independent judiciaries, property right. rights, blah, blah, right. blah. But Portugal really primarily pro liberalized their stance toward international trade. They were welcomed into otherwise democratic or liberal organizations like NATO and the European Free Trade Area. A lot of reasons they were let in was because they were anti-communist and there were political concerns at the time of the Cold War. But 
the point is that without liberalizing a lot at home, international trade or foreign support from other liberal societies, which have that growth in productivity as a mm -hmm. result of being liberal, if they trade with this illiberal regime, they can end up providing for a lot of the growth in quality of life and all these factors, even in an even in a non-liberal society, because they participate with these other more efficient societies that do these things. So they don't necessarily have to. So the, this sort of globalized liberal world order of all these other countries can sometimes make up, if you engage with them as an illiberal state, Right. they can sometimes make up for the lack of domestic liberalism. And this is right. something that Olson doesn't recognize. And it's a really important idea today, especially as we sort of deal with China and the growth of a very illiberal regime, which is making lots of economic growth and quality of life growth. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're making a really important point. We live in a highly globalized world, and we actually get a lot of our important goods from autocracies, right? And I guess here, sort of the material aspect comes back in. You know, we have this interest in providing for, you know, quality of life for our citizens here in the United States, and or our own national defense, right? I'm thinking like we get oil from Saudi Arabia, and we get consumer goods from China. China is our most important trading partner. And so these autocracies actually become, you know, embedded in the global liberal economic system of free trade because they can provide certain things and they can provide. And the story of Chinese growth is really interesting because it's an autocracy in some ways. It counter, it's a counter to Olson's theory, but it is actually part of it would be that they've become an exporter. They became an exporter of cheap goods, which brought a lot of money in. And funding growth and all these things without liberalism at home. Right. Without political liberalism, right? Sort right. of economic liberalization, but without political liberalism and still pretty pretty tight state control of the market. And another important point is that there is kind of a globalism among autocracies as well, right? It's not just money flowing from, you know, rich developed liberal democracies to, you know, China or Saudi Arabia. It's that, you know, uh, especially I think in Eurasia, a lot of autocracies in Central Asia, for example, between China and, and the Middle East are actually trading among themselves, right? Globalization is a worldwide phenomenon. It's not just restricted to liberal democracies and their chosen autocratic trading partners, if you're looking at, for example, I don't know, Syria five years ago, no one's going to invest in, in in the Syrian economy because for for economic reasons. But if you have a relatively stable autocracy, there's an there's an incentive, especially if they are possessed of natural resources like oil or if they are able to produce a lot of goods. There's reason to trade, and that creates economic growth. Both that you know, money flowing from liberal democracies to China, for example, or between autocracies from Russia to Kazakhstan or China to Kazakhstan or something like that. Um, so there's a new source of growth as a result of widespread economic globalization that can be helpful to autocrats in power. But even then, I would say it's important to note that the growth is right not going to be evenly shared, right? You still have this incentive to distribute your money to oligarchs in Russia, for example, while keeping the right. general population impoverished. And that's right. that's sort of an important note to, to sort of, you know, start to wrap things up, right, is don't get swept up in sort of these fantasies of, you know, an autocrat could organize things in the perfectly efficient way, right? Not only are autocracies brutally repressive, but they don't reliably deliver widespread prosperity. At the time of its transition to democracy, Portugal was, despite, you know, economic growth driven by Salazar and his, you know, financial skills, it was behind a lot of its European peers. So I think that that's something that's very important to remember. And I think on the point of 
that wealth or that growth of wealth is not going to be evenly distributed. That's perhaps the key central point in Olson's stationary bandit that remains true. Right. That a dictator is, in most cases, we talk about how Salazar is a bit of an exception, but in most cases, if you are a dictator, you are going to behave as a best described stationary bandit, right? And you're going to... you're going to take a lot of that national wealth for yourself, and it's not going to make it into the hands of people as much as it might in a democracy, which right. is one of Olson's key points. Part of the reason we explore Salazar is to point out that, you know, even in even in our most fantastical and even in the most fantastical scenarios that have happened in real life of a virtuous dictator, you know, you shouldn't buy into it. Salazar still does enjoy a relatively positive legacy in Portugal. He's probably one of the most successful cases of dictatorship in modern history. When I visited Portugal about three years ago, I remember we had a tour guide in Lisbon who, this is where I first heard of Salazar. It's the only reason I know about him. And then we've done all kinds of research to learn more. But this guy told me, he told me we had a dictator in the in the 40s and in the 60s. And Everybody loves this guy. He has a great, you know, everyone looks on him as like a national hero. And I thought that was such a strange thing to hear. But it's true. He still enjoys a fairly positive legacy. But even then, even with that sort of positive legacy or reputation, when you look closely at what went down in his regime, you begin to see that even with his financial wizardry and mostly rational and limited level of self-interest in his approach to rule he couldn't ov- overcome the structural factors that consign autocracies to economic and technical stagnation and social conservatism and appeasement of those elites who hold an interest in the maintenance of not just economic, but also social status quos. Yeah, I mean, and that gets to this point about democracy. And, you know, we were this our whole mission here is democracy, 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 right? The only way, right, to achieve freedom and prosperity in a society is through representative institutions, the maintenance of liberal rights, those two things go together very nicely, and a thriving civil society. And you can't, I, th- I think there's really no way around it. it. Up to now, we have not figured out a formula that has <laughs> that has been able to supplant that or work better than that at, at ensuring human freedom and a, and, a, and, a, and a high standard of living. Right. Yeah. I mean, e- Even though we want to imagine some person with absolute power simply doing the right thing, even if they are personally virtuous and dedicated to the country or even higher powers before themselves, all kinds of balancing acts and competing interests will force certain behavior, mostly concessions to the status quo, because as it turns out, absolute power hardly, if ever, exists. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and share this episode with your friends or on social media. If you'd like to listen to each new article of Focus and Insight read aloud, follow the link in the notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to make a comment on the episode that you just heard, there's a link to our website also in the notes, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter if you haven't already to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. And find us on Twitter, at Spectacles Media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.